So when we put this executive order together, it was really important to us to actually go back to the roadmap and think about all the different scenarios that our schools might face in this upcoming year and be prepared for a significant amount of time doing distance learning and, and give those flexibilities and assurances so that our schools are empowered to go for learning to start, which is what we want. We want them to start connecting with our kids across the state. Welcome to the Political Notebook Podcast. I'm Billy Robb. I'm a high school teacher. And I'm Robert Robb, an editorial columnist for the Arizona Republic and Billy's dad. That was Superintendent of Public Instruction, Kathy Hoffman, uh, start out here on the podcast uh, talking about the game plan for schools moving forward, uh, given uh, the COVID-19 scenario. Uh, We'll talk about that in the podcast uh, today. Um, And we'll also preview uh, the ballot initiatives that may go before voters in the fall uh, and talk about pending lawsuits uh, on those initiatives, what they might mean for ballot initiatives uh, in the future. But the recording this on a Thursday night, just after the uh, press conference uh, on COVID-19, specifically related to schools, even though the uh, new executive order did extend the state closure of bars, gyms, and water parks. Uh, But for the schools, they announced that uh, online classes uh, will begin on time for everyone. Um, Most uh, schools are starting up uh, next week or the week after. Districts will not be required to open uh, in person on August 17th totally, but they are required to provide an option for in-person learning for for kids whose families don't have any other options. And um, it sounds like in terms of the opening, it's not based on date specifically, but local districts and charters will be given uh, kind of like guidelines, like health guidelines and metrics on how to decide when to uh, reopen uh, and and how to proceed. Um, The governor emphasized that no one's going to be forcing uh, people to go back, trying to provide maximum flexibility. And so basically it's, it's turning a lo- over a lot of this control over local local school leaders. In my opinion, shows solid leadership and, and teamwork by Governor Ducey and, and Superintendent Hoffman working in a bipartisan fashion for the well-being of families in Arizona, given this challenging situ- situation where there are no good options uh, and um, even though we, you know, we haven't seen the specific metrics or guidelines, um, I think it's the best approach we could do under uh, the circumstances, uh, respecting the wide variety of, of options and, and preferences uh, that are out there. Uh, what are your thoughts on the executive order? Well, I, I certainly believe that um, maximum flexibility for everyone involved is the appropriate route. Um, I don't perceive this order as providing as much maximum flexibility as I think there should be. Uh, In essence, schools are being ordered to open up on August 17th for any child whose parents prefers to have the child um, in in, in a learning environment, also known as a uh, classroom. Uh, the guidance as to how physically the school should be configured in order to comply with that and subsequent 
uh, openings uh, to a broader range of students for in-classroom instruction aren't due until August 7th. That just gives kid that just gives schools 10 days to prepare. I had previously written a column in which I uh, advocated postponing um, the opening of school period uh, in class instruction and distance learning uh, until uh, after Labor Day. It's my perception that schools are not ready, but I would be um, more interested uh, in your perception of how ready the schools are and uh, how how they will be prepared to do what the governor has now ordered. Uh, you're on the front lines. You report to work on Monday. Um, do you do you think your school and schools generally uh, will be able to gear up quality distance learning immediately? Uh, make whatever physical configurations need to be made for an August seventh, August seventeenth, soft opening, um, and moving forward from there. What what what's your sense of preparedness? Well, you know, schools have been preparing for what what the order had been previously, which was all online learning uh, until the, the 17th. So I know there are some districts that announced that they were closing until uh, early October. So they wouldn't have been preparing for uh, anything but online learning. But every, everyone else, I think, had been preparing for uh, starting out with online learning and then you know, trying to move forward with at least giving options for uh, in-person learning or online learning. Uh, a lot of the teachers I, I've talked to um, have described different sort of strategies for for um, providing that option. Uh, some some schools are going to have uh, teachers teach both online and in-person learning for like the same class. Uh, other other schools are, are providing. Uh, like the teachers choose themselves whether they want to do in person or online and then try to match the students uh, to there. Um, but I think the the question that you ask about <clears throat> are, are, are schools going to be able to provide, you know, high caliber instruction from the get go? Um, I know that's the goal and everyone's everyone's striving to provide the best instruction possible. But I think just realistically, uh, either in person or online, it's not going to be as good as um, as if there was no COVID nineteen at all. I mean, if you're talking about online, you know, some students might thrive in that, um, but some some students uh, really don't. Um, and if if they are, that you're the type of student that doesn't really thrive there, but you're but you're kind of worried about uh, the health risks, and you don't, or you have a immune issue or, or a family member that does, you know, that, that person is going to be struggling in the, in the online, uh, format. I think there's natural uh, limitations to online format in general. And even if you're in, in person, um, uh, it's pointed out to me, uh, just, just earlier I was texting with, uh, buddy of mine, Forrest, who has been on the podcast before raising the concern about, uh, you know, even in, in person, there are, limitations now you can't have you know you probably won't be able to have the same you know interactive activities that you'd normally have in a, in a class people moving around working in groups uh 
you know, having, you know, going next to a, a table and, and pointing at their, uh, at their paper and, and, and providing, you know, just the kind of, kind of hands-on on instruction that you kind of want to have in person, which requires, you know, not <laughs> violating the, the, you know, the strict protocols that you'd want for the, uh, for the illness. So, um, is it, your impression that schools are, are as ready for it now as they would be a month from now, that, that the schools don't really need additional time, that they have been using the summer months to prepare for pretty well implementing what the governor has ordered? I mean, I think any school leader, I, I don't, I'm not an administrator, but uh, I think any school leader would you know, they always probably feel like they need more time to do everything they need. But, you know, the date's, the date's been set and, 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 and schools have, have, been, uh, have been preparing. So um, obviously we have more time, yet you can do more stuff. But I, I think that, you know, from the, from the beginning, that's been the aspirational date. And I think, I think school leaders have been, uh, have been preparing. But that's... They're, they're what? I, Go ahead. But, you know, there, there are a lot of people who, who would say that we shouldn't have, you know, school at all. And that, and that maybe, um, so there's, I can't speak for all, all school districts and all, and all educators, uh, with that. And I know it's just, you know, it's just a difficult situation with no good options. And I think, um, we're, we're doing the best we can. And this executive order and the decisions, in my opinion, were, the best, the best call that we could have under the, under the circumstances. There was a, another component to what the governor did with respect to education that I, I do think um, is um, commendable, uh, and that has to do with the financing. Uh, he is uh, going to use federal funds pretty much to ensure that all schools are uh, held harmless um, to be given uh, at least what they got uh, last year, um, if not more, irrespective of what happens to the mix between distance learning and in-classroom learning, uh, and even if there's a, an enrollment uh, drop for the schools. I think that's, a, that's, a, that's an appropriate and commendable approach and gives schools uh, greater certain certitude about the resources that will be available uh, rather than watching the um, daily attendance count uh, and trying to figure out how much money that's going to um, produce for them. Um, right. So I, I, I think that, that that part of what the governor said, even though I've got reservations about the rest, uh, was good, commendable, and in terms of looking at the funding issue, he's been on top of that um, from the beginning. He had, he had had an earlier infusion of cash about the only requirement for the schools is to have some form of uh, at school site learning available by august 17th yeah I, I, some of the question marks that might still be out there um state testing whether that's going to happen i can't imagine it would be the same sort of gauge that it that it would be normally um, and i think some of the biggest uh kind of conflicts are going to be just about what, what does that mean that kids have to be there in person 
um, if if that is a, an option, how schools will try to try to manage that, and also the teachers that that don't want to that that don't feel comfortable uh, going going back in person. Is there going to be some? Are there going to be some schools that that try to like force their hand? That are we going to have? Um, um, issues, issues with that. Um, I mean, it's a logistical nightmare. Anytime, anyway, you, anyway, you really talk about it and, um, there's going to be increased risks of catching the, uh, the virus, which will, you know, potentially raise a question of, you know, what, are you going to shut down schools when someone gets it? Um, how, how is, how is it going to work in terms of human resources uh, with that, and um, and then obviously the the concern about people getting seriously sick from it. So um, definitely not out of the out of the woods in terms of the complexity, in terms of the difficulty, and um, uh, but we're all sort of in this together and moving forward the best we can. Well, good, good good luck to you. <laughs> all the other teachers and the students as we thanks as we commence a new school year yep well uh let's talk a little ballot initiative pol- uh, politics here um there are four ballot initiatives that uh were uh, were filed um i'm not going to talk about each of them or any of them in great detail here except to uh, talk about the potential lawsuits that that might keep them from from the ballot. There's so there's four. There's there's the Invest in Ed ballot initiative that would be a, a tax hike on uh, on high income uh, folks to to provide money for education. Uh, there's a legalization of recreational marijuana initiative. There's an initiative to raise wages of, of hospital workers and provide for heightened standards of infection control. And then there's also a criminal justice reform initiative uh, to reduce sentencing for nonviolent offenders. Um, and before getting on the ballot, signatures uh, need to be collected. Uh, the signatures need to be verified and potential lawsuits need to be settled uh, uh, on those. And right now, I believe all of the lawsuits are facing lawsuits specifically towards the wording of the summary the 100-word summary that appears uh, when voters are handed the ballot initiative uh, to sign it. Um, and in 2018, InvestNed was booted off of the ballot because of the faulty summary, uh, that 100-word summary. This year, two years later, how strict do you think the courts are going to be in terms of uh, the language of these of these summaries? Well, the court, as a practical matter, invited um, uh, these challenges when in 2018 they, for the first time in Arizona history, uh, bumped an initiative off the ballot because of some kind of um, flaw uh, in the 100-word uh, summary. The flaw in the last Invest in Ed uh, ballot measure uh, was materially different uh, than the alleged deficiencies in the four lawsuits that have been filed against this year's uh, ballot initiatives. Invest in Ed in 2018 uh, unintentionally repealed a section of Arizona law that adjusted uh, the income tax brackets to account for inflation each year. 
Um, so each year, the amount of money that you have to earn in order to get into a higher tax bracket goes up. So um, by unintentionally repealing that section, I invest in ed wasn't as it was being depicted and as the hundred word summary described, a tax increase exclusively on the wealthy to fund education. It was a tax increase for everybody. And the court found that there has to be some degree of integrity uh, in the initiative passing process um, and uh, that one could not assume that the people who signed up for a tax increase only on the wealthy would have also signed up for an initiative that increased the income tax for everybody. So it was a very su substantial and material uh, defect. But I don't think the court wants to get in the business of um, fly-specking uh, these hundred uh, word summaries. The, the, by law, the summary is limited to 100 words. That's not very many. And none of these lawsuits allege the same kind of material defect um, that existed in the 2018 uh, uh, Invest in Ed initiative. Uh, instead, they uh, say that um, there are things that are in the initiative that have been omitted that aren't part of the 100-word summary. Uh, there is um, a more accurate way that it could have been described. Uh, and I, I don't think the court uh, is going to want to get into the business of playing editor of these 100-word summaries. Um, so I think it was inevitable that these lawsuits were filed because of the success in knocking um, the last uh, invest in ed ballot measure uh, off the ballot. Um, but I think the court will want to create some rules uh, to distinguish between the kind of defect that existed in 2018 and the kind of defects that are being alleged here. And I haven't I haven't read or, or looked into all all four of them in that much depth. But um, the one that uh, I have, and and these were all uh, discussed today in the in the legislative council, talking about what kind of language would appear before voters if they if they go to the fall. Um, but one of the one of the controversies on the on the current uh, version of the invest in ed is the way that the tax increase is described. Um, if you look at it one way, uh, the percentage is moving from, um, I think it's 3.5, uh, 4.5, 4.5% to like eight Correct. percent, uh, on, on incomes, uh, over a certain point. So it, I think it's two hundred and fifty thousand for for a single person, five hundred thousand for a uh, a couple. That any dollar over that amount goes into this new category, where instead of being uh, the four point five is now eight. Um, well, you could look at that one way and say, well, that's a you know that's a three point five percent increase on surcharge on on that just that um, amount. But if you put it a different way, you know, on that next dollar that is actually a 77.7% .7 increase. 
And so the arguments uh, are on that. Do you think that difference is material enough in, in that uh, it would affect, number one, someone's ability to sign it, or number two, that if it was described as 77%, it would be sort of like advocacy uh, in terms of presenting it and exaggerating it and making it seem a lot higher than it actually is in reality. I, I don't think that the summary, the 100-word summary for the initiative uses a 3.5% surcharge to describe what it is um, levying. Um, the challengers, the legal challengers, are saying that that's misleading because it implies that that the tax rate is zero percent up to that point. I I don't think I think the courts will find that describing it as a three point five percent surcharge is accurate, um, and uh, it's not a material misrepresentation like um, people under those amounts. Uh, won't receive any tax increase, which was what was stated in the in the hundred word summary that they rejected. Um, so I think it's it's unlikely that the court will um, invalidate the way that the proponents have described it in the hundred word summary. Um, on the other hand, there have been instances where the court contended or found uh, that the legislative council summary, which goes into the publicity pamphlet, um, rather than being neutral and objective, I don't know whether that's the exact words that the statute uses to require what is um, what should be there in the ballot uh, measure, but that, that summarizes the values, uh, neutral and objective. Um, the, the court has in the past struck down ledge legislative council descriptions, which were accurate. It is accurate to say that it is a 77% increase uh, in tax on income above um, those thresholds, uh, but have uh, regarded that as um, being tendentious and uh, have invalidated it. I think this particular court will be less likely to do that than past courts. Um, I think this particular court will be inclined to be hands off, both in terms of what the proponents put in the hundred word summary and what legislative council describes decides to describe it as um, for the uh, publicity pamphlet. Um, so I'm, I mean, we're going to see lots of lawsuits. The, the proponents are going to challenge legally the ledge council uh, descriptions in all likelihood. Um, but I think you're going to see, maybe I'll be surprised, but I think you're going to see kind of a hands-off court if there aren't true material misrepresentations uh, and uh, otherwise let the political process play its way out. We should, I, I think, clarify what happens in the legislative council proceedings. Legislative council is often used to describe the staff of the legislative council, which are um, highly qualified, very neutral, nonpartisan lawyers who are expert at drafting legislation and are equally available to all members of the legislature, irrespective of party. The legislative council itself is uh, members of the legislature 
and Republicans control the majority. Um, so um, there is reason to look at what the final language is for the publicity pamphlet um, for an attempt to try to uh, tilt the playing field in, in the election. Uh, but in contrast to previous courts that have been kind of activist, I think this court, unless it is a uh, material misrepresentation, um, is likely to let it pass both for the proponents in the 100-word summary and for opponents uh, in the Legislative Council in the way they describe, decide to describe it on the publicity pamphlet. Well, let's let's leave it there for this episode finished with a sports question all the pretty much all the Arizona teams are going back uh right now but there's no crowds at, at any of them how do you think that will affect uh the either the viewing of, of these games or the or the or the playing the playing experience well i i will confess except for professional golf i'm not paying any attention uh, to what's happening in um professional sports uh, and I would be unqualified to offer an opinion about that, even if I uh, did. I know that the professional golfers have said that it, it does make a difference. Uh, In which direction? Um, it doesn't. It, it kind of keeps the adrenaline level down and you don't get the sense of momentum when you're when you're on a, a roll. Um, I mean, these are professional athletes so um i would presume that uh, they're focused on the moment and what they need to accomplish in the moment but you you uh, arose in sports to a higher level than your father <laughs> did um what's your view of the matter i don't know i think it depends on the depends on the team depends on depends on the on the player it might help certain players hurt other players i think it'll be more boring to watch but i'm interested in seeing how the how the network sort of try to make it make it more interesting and evolve uh as the as it go as it goes on without uh, without fans you might not have fans for for some time in in sports well Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Political Notebook podcast. Uh, you can listen and subscribe on any podcasting app. Thanks.